Have you ever had the exciting experience of hitting a speed bump that you didn't know was there? So you're driving along. This usually happens to me at night, right? You're driving along. It's dark. You're kind of in a rhythm. You're moving along at a good clip, of course, always under the speed limit. But you're moving along, and all of a sudden, with no warning, you're flying up in the air. Your car is crashing back down to earth. You hit a lombada, and you had no idea it was there. That can be pretty scary. Okay, just, just to help me out. If that's happened to you, if you have either been the driver or a passenger when that's happened, can you raise your hand? You live in Sao Paulo. Of course that's happened. It can damage your car. It can even hurt your body. I remember banging my head on the ceiling of the car. What effect does that have on you? It gets your attention. It may have other effects, but one thing for sure, it gets your attention. And if you're driving that car you are suddenly very attentive to any more gifts that might be coming your way in the future. If you're a passenger in the car, you're even more attentive. And you are making sure that the driver is attentive while you also watch. Makes you concentrate. Makes you focus. Now, so far in the book of Acts, the new entity called the church has been proliferating and prospering. Their numbers are growing exponentially and while there's been a small conflict with the Jewish religious leaders, the church overall has enjoyed a great reputation and favor with all the people. But then, they hit a huge, unexpected speed bump. And it shocks them all. And I think it should shock all of us today, too. This speed bump's what we're going to talk about today. And how God used it how he used this painful, jarring event to get the attention of his people and to give them five reminders about who he is and what it means to belong to him. So I'll be picking up the reading with the last two verses of Acts chapter 4 and then moving on into Acts chapter 5. If you're, if you're following along in the NIV... Uh, you'll see that I'm actually starting the reading before where the NIV breaks the text. I don't think that's the best place to divide it. I think the division should have come before verse 36. But we'll pick up with verse 36 from chapter 4. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. 
and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The first reminder that God gives his people is that he is pleased with generosity. Luke sets the story up using a contrast. The good contrasted to the bad and the ugly. The good is covered in just two verses, simple and to the point. In fact, the very brevity of this account accents the pleasure God takes in simple generosity that gives from the heart without drawing attention to itself and without making a big, loud deal. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The only apparently unnecessary statement in the short description has to do with Joseph's nickname. But the mention of this nickname also shows God's pleasure. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by Barnabas. This is the, the only time in Scripture that we learn his real name, which is Joseph. The rest of Acts, we only know his nickname. He's known by his nickname, Barnabas. And it, it fascinates, fascinates me because it seems that encouragement flowed out of this man in such an, a brilliant stream that people could not help but associate him with that trait. Now, I had a number of different nicknames growing up, and none of them were son of encouragement. In fact, most of them didn't relate to a character trait. They would usually relate to uh, some negative physical trait. I'm not going to choose to be that vulnerable to share with you um, any of those nicknames. Um, if you really want to know, you can ask Joel Rast, and we'll see if he's willing to confess or not. But I want to ask you a question. What if all of us were given nicknames based on our most dominant character trait? So this is what has happened with Joseph. His most dominant character trait was encouragement. And that's what everyone called him, son of encouragement. What do you imagine that yours would be if those people who know you were forced to give you a nickname based on your character, what would it be? Son of laziness. Daughter of gossip. Son of greed. Son of bitterness. Daughter of dissension. I don't know. Or, by God's grace, would it be virtuous? Like Barnabas, son of encouragement, whose virtue shines forth God's nature. A virtuous man 
known for his encouragement to others, simply and without fanfare sells a field, gives sacrificially to help those in need. And that simple, free act of generosity pleased God. And God's reminding his people, that pleases me. That generosity from the heart pleases me. The second reminder that we get from this speed bump is that God knows the heart and the heart matters to him. I'm going to repeat that. God knows the heart and the heart matters to him. This story, this account of Ananias and Sapphira, it's not a pleasant story. And it's not the story that we use when we're evangelizing, is it? It's like, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus. Let me read you a story about Ananias and Sapphira. We avoid it. It's actually the first negative report that comes out of the early church. And it serves a number of purposes, but one of those purposes is to show that the church was not perfect, even back at its inception. And today, brothers and sisters, listen, if you come to the church, and when I say the church, I'm not just referring to this small part of the body of Christ at Calvary, but more broadly speaking, the church, capital C, all of the believers in Christ. If you come to the church expecting perfection, you will be disappointed. I'll go beyond that. If you come to the church expecting perfection, you have already ruined that perfection by being part of the church. Because we all bring, we all bring those imperfections. And it's interesting too, even that scripture, even Luke is not trying to give this impression, this fakery of a perfect community. It's a godly community. It's a loving community. It's a community that is witnessing, but it is not perfect. We are moving toward perfection. God is transforming us into perfect sons and daughters. He eventually will make his whole church perfected and purified, cleansed bride of the lamb. But we haven't gotten there yet. And on the surface, all that Ananias did was to give money to the church, right? That's what he did. On the, outs- out on the outside, that was it. And he paid for that generosity with his life. Wasn't this the same thing that Barnabas did? Didn't Barnabas just come and put some money at Peter's feet? Well, yes, on the surface, outwardly, that's true. But this issue for Ananias goes much deeper and it finds its root in the heart that is deceptive and selfish. So this severe punishment is God's reminder to his church that he sees and knows the hearts of his people and that the motives and desires of the heart matter to him. When Ananias comes in and puts that money at Peter's feet, Peter never asks him for clarification. Later on, when Sapphira comes in, Peter does give her a chance, doesn't he? He gave her an opportunity to tell the truth. But when Ananias comes in, the Holy Spirit knows the sin and darkness in his heart. He reveals that to Peter. The heart matters. Outwardly, Ananias gives money to people. But this outwardly good deed, it's sullied by the motives of the heart that are behind the act. Brothers and sisters, we, we may be able to fool others and we can all fool ourselves. We all do that 
on a fairly regular basis. But we can't fool God. He knows our hearts and our hearts matter to him. God's third reminder to his people is that their enemy is real, active, and dangerous. God's third reminder is that their enemy is real, active, and dangerous. Right before Ananias dies, right before the Lord takes his life, Peter asks him a question. It's a, a, it's a chilling question. It's a frightful question. It's a question that I hope is never asked of me. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? What exactly did Ananias do that was so bad? In what way did he lie to the Holy Spirit? Now remember, we're in the middle of a contrast. So let's just remember what Barnabas did. He sold a field and he put the entire amount of the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. But what's the contrast? Ananias and Sapphira sold a field and they kept back some of the money. Was that the sin? Was their keeping back part of the money their sin? No, it wasn't. Peter makes this really clear. He says, Ananias, wasn't this field yours before you sold it? And after you sold it, weren't the proceeds yours? Yes and yes. And would, since the proceeds were yours, could you not have kept back part of it or even all of it for your own use if you had wanted to do so? Again, Friends, this is not ancient Near Eastern communism. Okay, there's no outside force that's impelling him or forcing him to do it. Private property. It was yours, Ananias. You had the freedom to do whatever you wanted to do with it. So where was the sin? The sin came in their attempt to imply that they were giving the entire amount of the sale to the church. That was the lie. And they, they told this lie, at least Ananias told this lie without ever speaking. Because he was leading Peter, or trying to lead Peter and the rest of the church, to think something of him that wasn't true. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the recognition and the esteem that Barnabas had. So they wanted to be honored as sacrificial givers without actually being sacrificial givers, but they wanted people to think they were. They wanted to be well-known and well-thought-of and admired. And these selfish motives and egocentric purposes destroyed what outwardly was a virtuous act. It's interesting that it, the Greek word that's translated in the NIV, kept back, they kept back some for themselves, that Greek word actually means pilfered, stole, or embezzled. So the fact that they were trying to show as though this all belonged to God and kept back some of it, that the Lord saw that as thievery, as stealing from him. So there are two questions that we have to ask ourselves here. The first is this, how often do we do things ostensibly for the Lord but our motives are actually to gain recognition or praise for ourselves. 
That's a dangerous path to walk, but think about that. Consider it. I've shared with you all before that this is a temptation for me that I have to be constantly aware of. Sunday morning, I'm preaching, like right now, and these thoughts start coming to my mind. Oh, I hope so-and-so thinks this is a good sermon, or I hope so-and-so is impressed, or, you know. And I have to constantly be on guard against that because that's to walk the road that Ananias and Sapphira are walking. I want other, I'm doing this so that I get the praise and adulation of people. Here's the second question. How often do we imply that we are doing better than we are or that we're more spiritual than we really are or more disciplined than we really are? In short, how often do we try to get others to think better of us than we deserve? So uh, I'll give you an example from, from my life, from the life of my family about how this might work out. Incidentally, if you ever really want to know the truth of what a family is like, ask the kids, right? Parents, the kids, because the kids know. The kids know the truth. So a, a, a challenge that I have had in leading my family and that my family has had as a family is to be consistent with family devotions. It's something we do, but over the course of, of our family life, we have not always been super consistent with that. So we may strike a phase where we're doing well and we're having consistent family devotions and then things slide and slip and then we might go a few weeks or more where we don't have it. Then we come back and have it again and we're constantly being drawn back to this goal of being consistent in our family devotions. But let's suppose that we haven't had devotions as a family for a long time and then last night we had it. So then today, in conversation with brothers or friends or sisters or whatever, I just find a way to work into the conversation. You know, last night during our family devotions, this came up and so-and-so said this and Ethan said that and Micah commented this, you know. Now, was that true? Yes, it was true. It was absolutely true. What's the motive of the heart? I am implying that this is something that we do faithfully and consistently and regularly. And that's coming, and that's where the heart actually destroys what outwardly is a good thing. And this is what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. They want to show off something on the outside that's not true inside. And Ananias especially, he tells this lie without ever opening his mouth. Right? This is a challenge, brothers and sisters, among other things, to greater and deeper honesty and openness and vulnerability with each other. That we're not trying to portray ourselves as something or someone that we're not. So while that may have been the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, we still need to answer the question that Peter asks him, how has Satan so filled your heart? First of all, the filling to which Peter refers is not demonic possession. It's a different word. It's a different vocabulary. And I, I, wanna, I want you to hear this. This is extremely important. It is impossible for a child of God, for a believer in Christ, to be possessed, to be owned by Satan or by a demonic presence. 
That's impossible because if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a daughter or a son of God, you belong to him and he will not share ownership of you with any evil entity. But then how can Satan gain influence? Because this is what's happened with Ananias. What is this filling to which Peter alludes? The enemy, our enemy, the enemy of the church, the enemy of the God, of God, Satan, he can only have the influence over a believer that the believer gives to him. How does that happen? We don't have time to go into depth on this, but broadly speaking, there are two ways that we can give space in our lives to Satan. The first of those is by believing lies. Lies about ourselves, lies about God, lies about the world, lies about our brothers and sisters. Remember, that's how Satan attacked Adam and Eve, specifically Eve. Lies about God. Did God really say that? And then flat out saying, that's not true. You won't surely die if you eat from that fruit. So if, if we believe lies, that gives an opening for Satan to have influence in our lives. The second way is through openly unconfessed sin. We know there's sin. We refuse to confess it. We continue to live in it and to pursue it unconfessed. And we think we won't pay a price for that sin. That gives ever-increasing space for Satan to work in our lives, for him to have influence. The Apostle James, in his letter, gives us a little bit of insight into maybe this process. In chapter 1 of James, verses 13 through 15, he writes this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when... By his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So you see here how James is, is describing that it starts with that self-destructive desires, our own evil desires, that are fed that are fed because they're growing. Those desires are growing when they're full grown, he says. So imagine Ananias and Sapphira with that desire in their bellies, that hunger for recognition and esteem and honor. And they feed that desire. They mull it over. They think about it. They long for it. And by their longing, they give Satan more and more space in their hearts. And as the enemy gains space, he feeds those thoughts and he feeds those desires. And he whispers those lies to them. You deserve that recognition because you are such good people. You're such generous people. And the church should know that, right? We want to celebrate virtue. The church should know how good you are and how generous you are. And that desire grows, and when it's full grown, it conceives sin. It goes from the point of desire, and it steps over and crosses over into action, into sin. And as that sin grows, as James says, then when it is fully grown, it conceives death. 
So with these events, God reminds his people of the reality, activity, and danger of their enemy. He's a ravenous, roaring lion with a deep-seated hatred for the people of God, and he's stalking around seeking any open, any opening that we might give him. So friends, here's the challenge to us this morning. Let's not give him space. Let's not believe his lies, nor allow sin to fester in our minds, our souls, our bodies. Let's not let bitterness take root that opens up a pathway for the enemy to speak into us, to influence us. Let's not think that we can sin willfully and without repentance, that we won't be charged a high price. Let's hear God's reminder about the danger of our enemy. The fourth reminder that God speaks into his children is that he takes his relationship with his children seriously and so should they. God takes his relationship with his children seriously and they should too. God is holy, utterly and totally pure. Scripture says that he cannot abide sin. He cannot and will not be united with it. So, for the sake of illustration, have you ever tried to glue two surfaces together when one of those surfaces is dusty or dirty? What happens? The glue adheres to the dirt and prevents the two surfaces from adhering one to another. Prevents the two surfaces from being joined. That dirt is analogous to sin. It comes between God and his people and it prevents their union. It prevents their oneness. And that's why sin is so serious. It keeps us apart from God. And only if that dirt is then cleaned away can the two items be joined. Only if sin is dealt with once and for all can God and people be united. And God takes this union with his people, this relationship, so seriously that he made a way for sin to be permanently dealt with. And that way was the cross. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, dying in our place, offering his death and repayment for our sin. Broadly, generally speaking, we tend to be cavalier about sin. We don't take it seriously. We forget what it cost God to deal with it. We forget that each deep cut of the whip on Jesus' body, each deep puncture of the crown of thorns, the deep stab of the spear in his side, the holes in his hands and feet, all of those were part of the payment for our sin. For he was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. God takes sin and his relationship with us seriously. That's why he sent Jesus. But then the call is to us to take that relationship seriously as well. Ananias and Sapphira took their sin lightly and frivolously. And by doing so, they took their relationship with God and the redemption that he had provided in Jesus Christ lightly as well. And God's action reminds his people 
I take this seriously. And do you note the reaction of the people who heard these awful events? They were filled with fear. It's, it's mentioned twice. They were filled with fear. This is not referring to terror. Luke is talking about the fear of the Lord that comes from the knowledge of God's holiness and the consequences of our sin. The holy, profound, sobering fear of the Lord. It's the fear of God that we talked about so often when we were studying Exodus, where God said through Moses to the people that the fear of the Lord might be with you to keep you from sinning. It's the awareness of who God is and who we are. And if we live in that holy fear, we will never take sin frivolously. Because it's the fear of the Lord that leads us, one, to avoid sin, and then secondly, when we do sin, quickly to confess and repent. Now listen, friends, I am at that point now where I don't remember anymore what stories I've told you and what stories I haven't. So I know that I've already repeated myself. I will probably do that again in the future, and I'm about to do it right now. This is one time I do remember that I've told you this story before, but I'm hopefully going to give you a different or a slightly different application. For those of you who have ever driven in the United States on the highway, uh, particularly in the northern parts of the country, before every bridge, there's a sign. And it says, bridge may ice in cold weather. I grew up in Brazil. And after growing up here, I spent two years working on a ship and we were in the tropics the whole time. So when I actually moved to the United States to go to school, I had experienced one North American winter when I was five years old. I wasn't driving back then when I was five. So that first semester of school, it was you know, still warm, it was not winter, and I drove quite a bit here and there. And uh, I learned to ignore those signs. Because didn't, they didn't apply to my life. They didn't apply to my reality. Bridge may ice in cold weather, so what? And I, never, I got to the point where I never even noticed them anymore. So uh, in late December, I think it was around 28th or 29th of December, I was driving from Detroit, Michigan to Chicago, Illinois. And it wasn't snowing. And I was driving along and it started to rain. It was a really, real light rain, but I had my windshield wipers on and they were clearing the way. And it was wonderful. You know, what was incredible about it is the road was wide open because everyone was going so slowly. Um, and I thought, this is great. I'm making great time because everyone's in the right-hand lane and they're going slowly. And I have the left-hand lane wide open all to myself. And I'm clipping along uh, at the speed limit, of course. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going, and I'm making great time on my way back to Chicago. And then I come to a bridge. So what? It's a bridge. I've gone over other bridges in my life. It's no big deal. But this bridge was covered in black ice. They call it black ice, which is ice that you can't see. And as soon as the weight of the car came on, onto that black ice, the car just started to spin in the middle of the, of the interstate highway going about 65, 70 miles an hour, started to spin down the highway. And this is truly the hand of God. He spun that car into the grass median, which was wide, and it eventually came to a stop on the grass. 
I didn't hit anything. Nothing hit me. I didn't cause anybody else to hit anything. But it was a terrifying event. I finished that drive going about 20 miles an hour. I was slower than the slow people. And you know what? I, what grew in me was a healthy respect for those signs that I had treated with such inattention. You know what else grew in me? A life-preserving fear of ice on the road. And do you hear what I said? It was a life-preserving fear. I learned not to take those driving conditions lightly. The fear of the Lord is a life-preserving factor. We sometimes think of it as something awful, but it is something that God works in us to keep us from sinning, to preserve our union with Him, to preserve our relationship with Him. And this is the result of this event in the early church. They were all filled with the fear of the Lord, self preserving fear of God. And with this event, once again, I just reiterate, God reminds his people that he takes his relationship with them seriously and that they should do the same. The final reminder might at first hearing sound ironic. But through this event and its aftermath, God reminds his people that he is merciful And I am so grateful for his mercy this morning. Why do I say that God is merciful? In order for us to appreciate this reminder, we have to first understand and admit and accept that all of us deserve what Ananias and Sapphira got. Because we have all lied. We have all sinned. We have all portrayed ourselves as something we are not. We have all, as Paul says in Romans, fallen short of the glory of God. So we have to begin at that point. We all deserve what Ananias and Sapphira received. From that point on, we begin to understand the incredible mercy of God who has spared all of us and the vast majority of people, even within his church, who have not received this penalty for their sin. I know that from a human perspective, that's really hard to accept because we look at God's action, we say, God, that's not fair. That's not fair. Either you have to kill everybody or you have to kill nobody because it's not fair if you just kill some and not others. But you know, I know this is a hard thing for us to accept. God never promises fairness. That's not, that word's not in the Bible. It doesn't describe. God does not say he is fair. God is just and he is merciful. And Paul says that when we're trying to understand God's mercy, it's really hard to do because God says, I am God, therefore I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And what should be elicited in us rather than questioning, God, why this? Why aren't you fair? Should be a gratitude for his mercy, for his overwhelming mercy. Why did God 
give Ananias and Sapphira such a harsh consequence? I can't say that I know for certain, but I will point out for you a pattern. Remember when we studied Exodus that Israel was an image of what the church would eventually be. And Israel, God, God saved them from slavery in Egypt, just as God has saved the church from slavery to sin and death. God took them out of Egypt and took them to the promised land. And that promised land is kind of an image. It's, a, it's something that points to where God is taking his church, ultimately, which is heaven and paradise with him. Do you remember a really sad, shocking event that happened just as Israel was entering the promised land for the first time. After their first battle at Jericho, which was such an incredible, amazing, miraculous victory, one man, Achan was his name, he disobeyed the law of the Lord. God had specifically said, you should not take anything from Jericho. All of it is an offering to me. Destroy it all. What did he do? He took some clothing, he took some cloth, he took some silver, he took some gold. And he hid it under his tent. Nobody else knew, but God knew. Right? And that act of disobedience cost the broader community dearly because in their next battle, they were soundly defeated. And many of their people were killed. Many of their soldiers were killed. And it was because of this man's disobedience. Anyway, God goes ahead and he reveals this to the leaders. He reveals it to the people. And Achan and his whole family are put to death. They're stoned by the community. That's serious. Now fast forward to Acts. The church, we're on the verge of something new. The church has been born. The church is growing. The church is moving into its calling. And Ananias and Sapphira sin. And God gets the attention of the church by giving them what they deserve. So when they enter the promised land, God makes it very clear to his people, this is how I view disobedience and this is how I view deceit. Moving into the church age, if you want to call it that, where the Holy Spirit is indwelling his church, God gives the church another warning. This is how I view disobedience. This is how I view sin. Thank you, Lord for your mercy on us. And so we stand reminded that God is pleased by generosity that flows from a pure heart, like Joseph, Barnabas. Secondly, that God knows our hearts and that our hearts matter to him. Not only our outward actions, but the attitudes and motives of our heart. He reminds us that our enemy is real, active, and dangerous, He's looking for an opportunity constantly to gain influence in our lives. We must take care to not give him space by confessing, by repenting, by combating his lies with truth. Fourthly, that our God cares deeply about his relationship with us, so deeply that he paid the price for our sin. But because of that, he invites us also to have that same gravitas as we consider our relationship with him. And finally, we can rest in his mercy because of his forgiveness. He is a good God. He is a good father. And he showers mercy upon his children. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for including hard stories in your communication with us. Thank you for Thank you for showing us the failures of others, even in your word. Lord, in this particular case, may we learn what you want us to learn from such a difficult, sad story. Give us your holy fear. May we encounter you in such a way so that that holy fear keeps us from sinning. And thank you for your mercy. Thank you for paying the debt for our sin in Christ. For it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.